0: Just a quick note before we begin today's pod. We here at Top Docs want to thank Netflix for being the presenting sponsor of our second series of the pod. And we want to congratulate them on The Elephant Whispers winning the Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. And we're thrilled to announce that Netflix will be the presenting sponsor of season three of Top Docs. So, again, congratulations and thanks, Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill.
1: And I'm Ken Jacobson.
0: And here's our guest, RJ Cutler, talking about his new series on MGM+, Plus, Murph the Surf.
2: Murph the Surf is the story of America's first true crime television superstar, Jack Roland Murphy. And though it's a story that begins in the mid-1960s, it is as much a tale for our moment as ever there was.
0: R.J. is a return guest to the pod. He spoke with us last year about his Emmy-nominated Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry documentary on Apple TV. It was great to have R.J. back. He's a guest with a sense of what he does and what he believes and how he's trying to construct his films.
1: Yeah, having talked to R.J. a couple of times, I think we both enjoy having R.J. as a guest, and there's a slight bit of verbal jousting that goes on. He's very playful but thoughtful at the same time. And I think as an interview, it's a bit challenging because it's clear that he likes to give the viewer space to come to the viewer's own conclusion about what to think about his storylines.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And very willing to engage in our sort of interpretations. At the same time, makes it clear that that's just one way of looking at it and that there are many other possibilities that they're as wide as there are experiences.
1: RJ is an acclaimed filmmaker. He's twice Emmy nominated. Many of you probably know him from such films as The War Room and the September issue, and also his Billie Eilish documentary from last year. Murph the Surf is available now for streaming on MGM.
0: And if you enjoy this conversation, please do follow the pod. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Top Pod. That's all one word at Top Pod. Up next, our conversation with R.J. Cutler about Murph the Surf.
1: R.J. Cutler, welcome back to Top Docs. Oh, thank you, Top Docs. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. We're here today to talk about your fascinating new docuseries, Murph the Surf. My first question is, when we interviewed the first time for Top Docs, it was for your Billie Eilish film on Apple. And that was obviously a very different subject. It was a behind-the-scenes portrait of Billy, her music, her family, her career, but not dark like this one is. And so my question is, how do you personally compare your state of mind going into two very different topics featuring two extremely different people such as these two?
2: Oh, well, what a great question. I'm a filmmaker and an artist and when I make a decision to explore a subject, I think of it as a great opportunity to go on a journey. And I get to go on that journey with my collaborators and fellow artists who are working with me on production and research and post-production music and everything. All of the elements of what makes a, a film. And so every experience we have is completely different. It's a completely new journey and it's one that allows you to explore different areas of fascination, but also different areas of your own kind of psyche. You know, for Billy, it was the opportunity to spend a year with this extraordinary young woman who was coming of age as a young woman and coming of age as a singular artist on the landscape of popular culture. On some level, I'm sure I've said it before, half human, half alien. And almost inexplicably, but very real, very much half human and very much half alien. So we got to explore that and experience it. And with Murph the Surf, we're telling the story of a gentleman who really captured the public imagination in 1964 and held on to it until pretty much until his death a few years ago as a prototypical American snake oil salesman, con artist, criminal, charmer, seducer, you know, man of God. He captures all of it. And so we got to go on the journey of coming to understand him. And there are many similarities in the process, you know. You're making a movie. Or in this case, we're making a four-part movie of four hours. With Billy, we made one movie that was two hours and 20 minutes. But you know, In that moment, as a filmmaker, that's what you're doing. And you pour yourself fully into it, and you see what kind of, you know, I I kind of describe it as turning yourself inside out. You're having an experience of coming to understand this subject as fully as you can as a filmmaker and an artist. I always say, if you were to make the film, if you were in the same rooms I was in, or you had the same access to the same archive that I had with Murph the Surf, or if you witnessed the same things that I witnessed with Billy, you would make a completely different movie than I would make and that I made because we are completely different people. And so each of these experiences, each of these films gives me the chance to explore a fully, as I say, turned inside out aspect of who I am and what I think matters in the telling of a story and in a film. And so there are similarities, but of course, the subjects are what make them completely different.
0: Jack Murphy, Murph the Surf, came to prominence in the early 1960s, 64, 1965. After doing some crimes in, in Southern Florida, he goes to New York, goes to the Museum of Natural History. He and accomplice climb up there, grab the jewels, run out. I think it's a really interesting story because it is kind of a classic American folk hero, robber, folk hero kind of story. But it's also in some ways, I think anticipating the later 60s, he seems like he's on the cusp there. And I think he even brings up later that he thinks of himself as the later 1960s Bunny and Clyde. And it's really a sense of the kids taking on the establishment. That's some of what that story's about, right? And you close it with Dylan singing outlaw blues, which I think really drives that point
2: home. Absolutely. I mean, it's all fun and games in a way when he's just stealing diamonds from the Museum of Natural History, and the bumbling cops can't pin it on him, even though they know. He's the one who did it. And we we love our outlaws, you know, and we love our snake oil. We love it all. We can't get enough of it in America. We love the Bonnie and Clyde story and we love the criminal outlaw, but we sometimes don't see where it's going. And you don't make Murph the Surf. If you're me, you don't make it in the time of Donald Trump without being conscious of the fact that this guy, this con artist of the highest order, seemed like fun and games to a lot of the people who supported him, but for crying out loud was hell bent on destroying democracy. So, uh, you know, the stakes get high fast and the stakes got high fast with Jack Murphy as well. You ended up with two young women who were brutally murdered beyond any understanding of how anyone could commit the murders that he and his accomplice committed. And then you end up with the story of a man who has committed these grisly crimes, who is of course embraced by the religious right and exonerated and let free. So this is a story that again, parallels our times in many ways, but illuminates our times as well.
1: Episode one, is quite a ride. It starts out with, I think it's kind of a romp in many ways. We are caught up in the spirit and really the intrigue and the joyfulness of what Murph the Surf and his fellow surfers and then fellow jewel heist thieves are up to. And you carry us along, pardon the expression, on this wave until the end. And then at the end, you bring in these murders, as you described them, these grisly murders of these two young women, and the episode kind of ends abruptly. And, you know, on one level, it's a teaser for episode two, because we want to know more about what happens. But I think there's more to it than that. Can you talk about the decision to end episode one where you did? Well, um, you know, it's all fun and games until someone gets
2: hurt, is the point I was making. We have this in politics. We have this in culture. We have this in society. And we make choices. Who we lionize in our culture is significant. And who we worship in our culture is significant. And we have to kind of consider that. I remember when uh, Al Gore and George the Second, where W. Bush were running for resident, you, you'd hear so many times, what's the difference? You know, it doesn't really make a difference which one. Vote for the one you want to have a beer with. Don't worry. Don't look at the policies. Don't But that's all fun and games, and until as Mike Dyson says, uh, someone punches you in the face, until September 11th happens, and then suddenly America's in a war that could last for a century. It matters, is the point we're making. It's one thing to see all the kind of monkeys-like frolicking of Jack and his friends as they are avoiding the police. But real crimes were coming right around the corner. And they shouldn't surprise you if you realize who Jack really was and you see the kind of sociopathic nature of his behavior. And those crimes are not to be distinguished from the crimes he will commit later in terms of what he says is the truth and his unwillingness to take responsibility for these murders. One of the things that is important to me is always to, and we do this extensively in this series, I'm always asking the question, as a viewer, what is compelling you? And how are you implicated in the questions that are being asked here? And I want to ask the same questions of myself as a filmmaker. What is compelling me? What is attracting me? How am I culpable in this fascinating dynamic that I'm exploring? And so the abrupt nature of the end of this episode is meant to kind of stop on a dime and say, but wait a second, if you know what's coming, how does that change everything you've just experienced for the last 60 minutes and for the time to come?
0: I love to talk about Murphy as a screen presence and photography and film. There's very early footage you have of him after the robbery denying that he was involved. And he's so confident. It's really shocking how comfortable he is in front of a camera. I'm not surprised today when people are comfortable in front of cameras, they've been
2: on them their whole lives. But he's... He was one of the first. He had a gift. He understood the camera in a way that probably no criminal had before. I mean, when we we say that he is the first true crime television superstar, you know, people would tune in at night to watch the evening news to see what was the news about Jack Murphy? What had happened to Murph serve? Did they catch him yet? Did they, everyone knew he had done it. They couldn't catch him. And he was, he had that presence. He knew the power of the camera. And remember the Beatles hadn't arrived yet. You know, it was post JFK assassination, pre-Beatles. And in that void, America was obsessed with Jack Murphy.
0: It really also makes you think a little bit when we see him later proclaiming his love for the Lord, his ability to project a certain confidence and surety. I wonder about it, Ben.
2: Well, sure. And look, this is a story that raises questions about the very nature of truth itself. Because on one hand, who are we to doubt this man of faith who has devoted his life to helping so many others. And on the other hand, it can't help but ask us why we so desperately need to believe in people like Murph, even when we think or even when we know that they're looking us in the eye and lying to us. It touches on this kind of third rail of American identity, because we are forever drawn to these figures. You
0: know, he even gives us a little sense of how he does it, right? Because he talks about how he convinced the psychiatrist in the trial for murder that he was insane, quote unquote. He talks about, hey, I imagine what Liberace would say or Sinatra or Castro, an interesting mix of kind of uh, Southern Florida obsessions from here, period, yes, interestingly. Yes, yes. So he tells you, I kind of imagine some of the shots we see of him in Stern magazine that he's channeling Steve McQueen or Paul Newman. you know.
2: Yes. And he saw himself as a figure in a movie his whole life. And that's why the great obsession of his post-prison years was getting Hollywood to tell his story, which, by the way, he ended up succeeding at and getting me and Ron Howard and Brian Grazer to tell his story. You know, he got there. Of course, we didn't tell it the way he wanted us to tell it. We told it the way we believed it needed to be told. But he was a movie star in his mind the whole time, the whole adventure.
1: It was announced, I think, in July 2020 that your company and Imagine Documentaries were teaming up to make this series. And Murph died, I was surprised to see, in September 2020. So that's not a lot of opportunity to interview your main subject.
2: We were very fortunate. First of all, one of our producers, Ryan Gallagher, who led the research effort on this is just a a, a freaking genius beyond imagining this guy. He's working with me on the Elton film as well, but he'd be the first to tell you there's more archive on this than there is even on Elton John. It's astounding the level of archival material that we had to build a four hour series with. You're everywhere with Murph and it's really amazing how it comes to life. But Murph did pass away suddenly. He wasn't sick. We didn't have a sense that it was coming in any way within a few months of our agreeing to work together. But we did have time. We had time to do a Zoom, a long Zoom interview. Remember this was in the, I can't pinpoint the exact moment in the COVID arc, but it was during that period. We did a lengthy Zoom interview and Ryan did what we thought was going to be a pre-interview. At that point, we were thinking of doing everything on camera. We ultimately decided Uh, Not to do on-camera interviews, to do audio interviews only, but we had Murph, we had the Zoom, we had spent maybe six or seven hours, which is a lot of time. And then Murph himself had been filmed by Dominic, one of the characters, his business partner and and creative collaborator. And we had that material as well. So we had what we needed. And I ended up really loving the form of this and that there was no on-camera interview that we did in the making of this film. I have great ambivalence towards using on-camera sit-down interviews, as you know, from the Belushi film, from Listen to Me, Marlon, which I didn't direct but produced. And you'll see in both the Martha Stewart film and Elton John that we're very particular in the way we use on-camera interviews. I'm much more attracted to source material that's archival interview that brings the moment to life in a way that isn't about me and the subject in dialogue. Sometimes you want it, sometimes you want it, and it works beautifully. In Big Vape, which is a series that's coming up on Netflix about the Juul vaping device, it really works to be in in an on-camera interview environment, but almost always find a path that's around the sit-down interview, and in this case, in the case of Murph the Surf, we were able to do that again. A lot of archive and then our kind of prep conversation with him, which ended up being the last interview that he gave in his life.
1: When you had that Zoom interview and then the prep interview that Ryan did, I'm curious about the conversations that took place amongst yourselves about Murph's predilection to control the narrative.
2: Murph's predilection to control the narrative was all we talked about because it was very clear that this would, that he, you know, I want to make a joke about the fact that the only way to not have him control the narrative was for him to pass away, but maybe that's not the loveliest joke to make. But regardless, I know he would have done everything he could and he was not beyond, and this was very striking in my initial meeting with him. He was not beyond letting me know he knew where I lived. Literally. He knew about my family. He knew that I had young kids. He knew, you know, that thing that in the series, a number of people talk about experiencing with him. He had those kind of, you know, mafia boss tactics. He would let it be known and it was chilling. It was chilling because you'd be talking about the stories we were going to tell and how we were going to tell them. And you'd say, by the way, I couldn't help but notice the project your wife sold is very exciting. And anyway, what's it like to have a a young kids under the age? Whatever. It was inappropriate, but it was his way. And anyway, we'll never know what that experience might have been had he lived. We went our merry way in telling the story. And by the way, in telling the story exactly as we said we would from the beginning, the series is almost exactly what we pitched when we were setting it up and what our good friends at MGM Plus embraced was all of this complexity, including the implication of ourselves. We knew from the beginning that episode four was going to be about the fact that the filmmakers had to confront this stuff and deal with it as well.
0: We've talked a lot about Jack, and I think we're becoming more aware that in covering crime, broadly the true crime genre, your series is way beyond that, but that we sometimes erase the victims, right? Especially if they're women. Um, and I think your series goes out of the way to bring these two people, Terry Ray and N. L. Marie, to life and to show them as full people.
2: It was very important to us to honor the memory of Anna Limon and Terry Ray Frank. It was very important for us to see the narrative as much as possible from their perspective, to understand the way the media treated them, to see the way that women who are victims in true crime narratives are often thrust into a very specific role, and then to see it in print, just to experience it the way that they were talked about, you know, not as victims of a grisly crime, that was unforgivably violent, but as tardy, bathing suit wearing, loose women who had it coming. And it's so boring. This is the way the culture treats victims, but it's so important to expose it. And this was part of the way that we were able to also understand the history of true crime narrative in the popular culture and to see the way it manifested in this story.
0: So a very important part of this story is the story of Jack's conversion, uh, parent conversion. He says he believes God reached out to him and finally called him. And this becomes his way out of prison. There's a lot of ways to talk about this. It's a lot of the latter two episodes of the series. One of the things that really caught me is the way that you use animation. So Jack was very drawn to the story of Noah and the whale. And you cleverly show how that might work for a surfer, you know, falling and descending into the whale's mouth. It's also in some ways, it shows how he tells the story. Also, in some ways, I think you use it to cast at least some doubt on the potential veracity of that story.
2: I've been using animation for a while, and I find it very rich as a tool in documentary storytelling. The first time I did it was for a History Channel show about Shay's Rebellion, which was part of the series. Joe Berlinger was the executive producer, and he got a bunch of documentary filmmakers to... Tell different single days that changed American history. Bill Clinton animated it. And what a, it was so much fun to bring it to life, but to do it in a purely documentary way. And then with Belushi, we were able to be in rooms that you couldn't otherwise be in with young John, but also with John at various points in his life. I was very excited about that. And in this project, it's again, we're able to enter a Murph's perspective through animation. He's not a reliable narrator, and we make that clear, but often the tales he's telling want to be brought to life because they captured the public's imagination so fully, and we use animation to do that. I do want to say it is not my intention to cast doubt on the veracity of his conversion or the veracity of his storytelling, but to bring you into that storytelling more fully So that you can decide for yourself if you buy it or not.
1: I think he believes in his conversion, and that's kind of enough on one level. But I'm more interested in the systems around that conversion, by which I mean there are all these preachers that we see coming into prisons, whether it's Frank Constantino or it's Pat Robertson or it's whoever. And There is this symbiotic relationship between prisoners who either have already converted or are susceptible to conversion, and these preachers, and frankly, the businesses that these preachers are serving. I wonder if you could talk more about how you kind of unspooled that dynamic between these preachers and prisons and prisoners. You see the
2: phenomenon. You see the complexity. You see the need for support, for faith, for a way out, for hope. You're grateful in your heart that these men, we mostly see men, but these men, and you assume women, are given a light to walk towards, a light at the end of the tunnel, a reason for hope, for reform, for salvation, for anything. You know, what a hopeless environment they were in, and that prison's disgusting and the slop they eat and the way they were treated. And so it's very hard to question the motives of those who would provide this kind of religious leadership. But then there's all this complexity that goes along with it and all this reason to doubt sincerity. And you wondered, you know, who's profiting off of whom and who's taking advantage of whose vulnerability, and who's telling the truth, and who's lying? And why will Murph just say he'd fucking kill them? Excuse my language. But, you know, why? Why? He's a man of God, but he won't admit his sins. I don't want to judge him, but all of these things come up. This is the richest, for me, kind of landscape for storytelling, because there's so much complexity, and you've got to find your way through it and you have conflicting feelings as we often do when confronted with human behavior. And this is why we make these movies to explore these things. It's why I do anyway. We're exploring the human experience. That's all we're doing in these films. And that's why I freely equate narratives with nonfiction. It's all the same. It's all exploration, cinematic exploration of the human experience. And that experience is really complex. And then when you put it in a social and cultural context, as you do with Merck the it's a complexity that you start to recognize all around you. So I can't, I mean, I guess in a way I've answered it, but I don't want to suggest that I come down on one side or the other. It's meant to be this very complicated tangle. And that's why when you see these, what we know as these very hard right politicians, In Florida, not granting Murph the exoneration he's seeking because he won't admit to the crime. You know, that's the woman who cooked the books in Florida for the gore, um, Pam Bondi. You may not remember her, but I remember her from the, the recount days. But, you know, Murph wasn't getting away with the recount for sure. She wasn't giving him that.
1: One of the preachers, I think, is treated a little differently, and that's Billy Graham. For me, perhaps, my favorite moment of the film, the one that really gave me the most pause and just made me think about what you were trying to do, this is a clip near the end of the film. And it's a juxtaposition between a scene where Jack has come up with this idea that there was a fifth man at the scene of the murders on the boat in Florida. We've just heard his associate, his friend, Dominic Fusco say that he believes Jack when it comes to his story about the murders involving this fifth man. And then you cut to a clip of Billy Graham, who says, I believe the evidence is overwhelming that he is who he claims to be. I cannot prove it scientifically, but I can prove it by the lives that he transforms every day. I would love to hear more about the juxtaposition between these two clips and also I would note that Billy Graham makes an appearance early in the film when Jack is relating a story about his dad telling a young Murph, hey, come check out this guy. And he's referring to Billy Graham during one of his crusades on TV.
2: Yeah, he was his father's hero. And his father was the source of so much pain for Jack, as is often the case in these stories, the subject seems to have a hole that can't be filled in their heart, and the father figure is the one who who dug that hole. We see that over and over again in these narratives. For me, the Billy Graham section is meant to put the finger of the series on the raw nerve of the question of faith. And again, who are we to judge another man's faith? Who are we to question? And yet, how can we help ourselves but question in the case of somebody like Jack Murphy. And you've touched upon the kind of fundamental complexity, but also, in a way, the genius, if I may, of organized religion and the human need. Look, you mentioned the Billie Eilish film before. One of my favorite scenes in the Billie Eilish film is when she drives off for the first time and her dad is talking about how we function as humans through our ability to live in denial, you know? And one of the things that helps us is our faith in a higher power. Because we're only human, we're all dust in the wind here for a blip. And how do you deal with that? With all the emotions and all the other things you have to deal with in your life and your heart and your mind and all of that, here it is writ large in the story of Murph the Sir. The fifth
0: man thing, obviously it could be conceived as just convenience for Jack to say, oh, we didn't do it, somebody else. But also to me, it was part of the story. It's part of the storytelling. It's the dark other. It's a doppelganger. It's the devil. You know, it's the person that I used to be that I'm turning my back on.
2: I love that. I love that you said that. What you're suggesting is that it's almost as if he had to create an alter ego who is responsible for the crimes he can't bring himself to confess to, even though convicted, even though we know he committed those crimes. And everybody, the other guy on the boat, everybody who knew him, the people who saw him, every you know, the bodies were counted the bodies that survived and the bodies that didn't survive we knew how many people were on the boat there were not five people on the boat there was no fifth man or a fifth person that read of it is very powerful to me i think he was just making up a tale but i see i see what you were saying because everything kind of starts to function metaphorically and there's a the final moment of the series is his wife talking about how he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night For the rest of his life, even though he would never talk about the murders, we're here to ask questions. We're here to tell a yarn, a great yarn, and compel you and entertain and engage, excite you in high-stakes storytelling, and also to tell an important story of American history and culture. But really, we're here to ask these questions, and it's why it's so gratifying to talk to you guys, because you see what the kind of conversation, questions that we're here to ask and lead to.
1: You've been making films for decades, RJ. You're one of our most acclaimed filmmakers. Yet I can't think of a time when I actually saw RJ Cutler in one of his own movies. Mm -hmm. And there is that scene where Imagine Documentaries and Ron Howard and Brian Grazer and Mm -hmm. RJ Cutler in a still make an appearance in this film. Mm -hmm. And I just was curious what that was like for you to... Be cutting a scene in which you were in the film?
2: Oh, no, I, not much. And it's interesting. Maybe it's true that I haven't ever cut away to a picture of myself or anything. I don't know why I would have ever been in the background of a scene. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. But what this was, was a need to implicate the filmmaker in the story, because we need to be implicated. The question needs to be asked, what is compelling us in the telling of this story? And where do we come out on all of this? I mentioned that this was, from the beginning, it was clear to me that Murph's desire to have the story told by surrogates on his behalf ended up in our lap. And so we needed to be held to task for that. We're also audience conduits. And as such, I'm always looking to break that fourth wall in important moments. You may remember towards the end of the September issue when Anna Wintour... The crew becomes the subject of the De spread in the September issue. We, the documentary crew, become the subject. And Anna Wintour is reviewing the photos and Bob Richmond, the DP, she doesn't like the fact that he has a little paunch and she tells him to go to the gym. It's a hilarious moment and it's great and it's great fun. But every audience member watching that movie is thinking, Does Anna think I'm fat? And has been thinking that the entire movie, which is one of the very natures of the confrontation with fashion. My self-image, my body image, my fear of judgment. What do my clothes say about me? And it all comes together in that one moment in the September issue. In the case of Murph the Surf, I feel similarly. When we become the ones who are telling the story, at which we have seen how important it is for Murph to get to that point. When we are the ones, it is a revealing moment that gets to the core of what the whole series is about.
1: Finally, what's up next for you? Oh,
2: we've got a lot going on. Our film that I produced that Nicole Noonan directed, The Disappearance of Sheriff Height, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, is gonna be on the award circuit, there's soon to come announcement for theatrical distributions. I am personally finishing a series for Netflix called Big Vape that is going to be on in the fall, a four part series that I directed about the history of the Juul vaping device. And I'm hard at work on two feature documentaries, one about Sir Elton John, the story of his final year touring in North America, as well as the story of the first five years of his career, 1970, to 1975. We're very excited about that. And our film about Martha Stewart that I'm directing is also deep into post production and edit. And we'll be finishing that at some point this year as well.
1: Fantastic. I think I've got my queue all lined up for the next year and a half of things to watch. <laughs> Nice of you to say.
0: And we just want to note we did have Nicole Newman on the pod talking about the film. Right. You to her live at Sundance.
2: She's a superstar. What a gifted artist and what a brilliant film she made.
1: I would just close by saying I think that not only do you implicate yourselves in the story, but you also take a great deal of responsibility where it concerns telling this story. And Providing, I think, a narrative corrective to the way the story of Murph the Surf has been told time and time again. I would just commend you and your team for telling the stories of Terry Ray Frank and Anna Lee Mohn that deserve their voices to be heard from. And I want to thank you for sharing your voice with us today, RJ. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm so grateful to you guys, and thank you for saying all of that. Both of you, and for this, as always,
2: awesome conversation. Hope there'll be uh, lots of opportunity for more.
1: Do you have a hidden gem? A film that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Go find the film called
2: Crisis, made by the Drew Associates in 1963. It was months before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He and his brother Bobby, who was the Attorney General, stood up to the racist governor of Alabama, George Wallace, who was not allowing young men and women of color to register at the University of Alabama. In spite of the fact that the Supreme Court had ruled that public education was a right that every American was entitled to, regardless of their race. It was quite a showdown. And there was D.A. Pennebaker and Alan David Maisels and the other Drew associates there to capture it all from within the White House, from within the Attorney General's office, from within the governor's mansion with Governor Wallace. And it's the story of the moral maturation of JFK at the insistence of his younger brother Bobby and that's a movie that should be seen today, because needless to say, we have monsters no less significant than George Wallace in our political landscape to this very day, trying to oppress people of color and other minorities, to limit their voting rights, to limit their freedoms. It's a brilliant film. And the film that, quite frankly, inspired me to reach out to D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges, when Wendy Ettinger and I were putting together what became The War Room. It's on DVD now, you can get it from Amazon, but we went over to the Museum of Broadcasting. We found a rare copy of it and we watched it. And then when it was over, we looked over at each other and tears were streaming down both of our faces. And we said, let's find the people who made this. And we reached out to D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges. Check out Crisis, that's a good motion picture.